Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Maria Lily Shaw, an economist at the Montreal Economic Institute. She's the author of the new policy paper, Real Solutions for What Ails Canada's Healthcare Systems, Lessons from Sweden and the United Kingdom. I'm grateful to talk to her about the paper, including its key insights and analysis and the potential lessons for Canadian policymakers. Thanks for joining me, Maria Lily, and congratulations on the paper. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just start with a basic question. Why did why do you think carrying out this kind of comparative analysis is important? And why did you choose Britain and Sweden as the comparators? Well, it's important because we saw with the pandemic how hard it hit our healthcare systems. And in a way, it did limit a bit our freedoms because they had to implement policies that would uh, restrict the stress on our healthcare system. So we asked ourselves, you know, how can we make it so this type of stress is no longer an issue in the in the future? And the reason why we turned to uh, the United Kingdom and Sweden is because these these two countries managed to transform their healthcare systems that were previously a lot like our own, meaning monopolistic and uh, primarily government run. So with some concrete reforms, their systems are now more flexible, capable of meeting the needs of their population in a timely manner whose costs are similar to or lower than a lot of provincial healthcare systems in Canada. And most importantly, really the one of the main reasons why we actually chose these two countries is because uh, despite these major transformations, they managed to maintain the universality of their systems, meaning the equality of access was maintained throughout all the reforms. And the reforms they introduced to achieve this, this transformation, I'll say, promoted the participation of entrepreneurs in the provision of healthcare. They also increased the number of doctors in, on their territory and encouraged the collaboration between government-run institutions and the independent sector. So they, they started where we are, and they've managed to, uh, as you say, transform their healthcare systems in a way that seems to be producing better outcomes. We'll come to the question of, of the nature of those transformations in a minute, but let's just start with a conversation about those out- outcomes. Uh, as you mentioned, a big issue um, in the world of Canadian healthcare policy in recent weeks and months has been um, that of capacity and resiliency. The British and Swedish healthcare systems outperform ours with respect to medical personnel, equipment and technology, in broader capacity. Do you want to talk a bit about how they perform relative to ours as a kind of starting point for um, why we ought to be interested in what they've uh, what they've done? 
Absolutely. And it's kind of the result of these reforms. So the way they perform today, uh, in many respects, like you said, is better than a lot of provincial healthcare systems. If you look at the number of physicians per thousand population, they outnumber us, the number of even the number of nurses, which we are quite high up in the ranking in usually, but they still outperform us in respect to the number of nurses per thousand of population. Even the wait times are less, uh, less long, let's say, in Sweden and the UK. Um, we do have benchmarks that we have to respect because if they surpass, let's say, six months, it becomes a bit more dangerous medically. But uh, even if Sweden and the UK also have those benchmarks, they manage to operate on these people sooner, uh, which is just better overall for the well-being of the patients and the population. Okay, that's great. And, you know, I would point to listeners that this is a 69-page paper, so there'll be limits on how much we can cover in this conversation. But as you say, on some key metrics, uh, Sweden and Britain outperform Canada when it comes to the performance of their healthcare systems. On the question of the transformations that got them to this place, do you want to unpack for our listeners, uh, Maria Lilly, some of the key changes that were made? You know, maybe, maybe highlight a few that you think had the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, there's, I have three that immediately come to mind. Uh, the first one being that Sweden did end up removing their prohibition on duplicate health insurance, meaning that their population could, starting in 2010, buy themselves a health insurance that would cover the cost for care that would already be covered under the public system otherwise. So if they want to have an operation uh, that is already medically covered with the public insurance scheme, uh, they could still end up having that same operation in an independent facility and the cost be covered by this insurance. And the reason why this is important is because right now in a lot of Canadian provinces, this is actually not allowed. People can't buy a, uh, a duplicate health insurance which means that if they want to receive, let's say, an operation on their knee. Now, this is usually an operation that's covered under the public insurance scheme. Um, but let's say they're on the wait list and it's taking too long and it actually prevents them from working. And, and I say this as an example, but I know that this is actually something that does happen. Um, well, while they're waiting on the wait list, they can't work because they're in too much pain. They're waiting for the operation on their knee. But because they can't prescribe to a duplicate health insurance policy, they can't go seek for this operation in an independent facility because they don't necessarily have the means to pay the full cost out of pocket, which is actually the situation right now in, uh, in a lot of Canadian provinces. Another uh, policy that was absolutely key to the transformation of their healthcare systems was the fact that they do not prohibit the practice in both public and private uh, institutions simultaneously, which is, again, the case in a lot of Canadian provinces right now, meaning you can't be a doctor and practice the same medical procedure in a public institution and in a private institution at the same time. So this really freed up a lot of time for physicians who wanted to practice in both sectors at the same time. And finally, one of the most important uh, reforms that I can think of with, uh, with their transformations is the fact that they tra transferred the funding of their hospitals from historic budgets to activity-based funding. And this is important because it actually makes it so that the funding follows the patient. So when a patient gets treated in a hospital, that hospital receives a certain amount of money depending on the treatment that was given. And so they know exactly how much they will receive per patient and they want to attract more patients because this is their source of revenue. 
which is not the case in the hospitals in a lot of provinces here because they are still funded through historical budgets, meaning they will receive an amount of money that depends on the activity they had the year before. That's great. And, and I would just emphasize that uh, Maria Lilly has, has just given a, a, tr- a truncated description of uh, what is outlined in great detail in, in the paper in terms of how these two countries have, through these types of reforms, transformed their healthcare systems. Let's talk about the question of mixed practice in a moment, but I, I want to pick up the points you, you, you made about um, duplicate insurance. Maybe a kind of two-part question. The, the first is, as you alluded, this isn't done uniformly across the country. We presently have some provinces that enable duplicate insurance uh, with respect to hospital and physician services and, and some that don't. Um, so maybe uh, if you could provide a bit of color on that. And then the second question, uh, which I suspect some listeners may wonder, is how has Sweden and the United Kingdom enabled a mixed insurance model without creating the kind of inequities whereby those with the ability to pay are able to get faster and better service compared to those who are stuck in the public model because they don't have the means to acquire um, their own private insurance? Yeah, well, just to answer the first part of your question, there are provinces that actually don't have the prohibition on duplicate insurance. And these would be Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Saskatchewan. Uh, so they they managed to offer this type of service to their population. So if those who would want to buy such an insurance, they'd be able to seek care for services that are normally funded by their public insurance scheme, but they can still pay for it with uh, alternatively with a private insurance plan in a clinic that would be independent from the government sector, basically. And But there are the majority of our provinces and the majority of our population is actually subject to the prohibition on, public, on duplicate uh, health insurance. Uh, As for the fear of creating a type of two-tiered system by introducing duplicate health insurance, is it's a fear that we hear often, and it's one that I, of course, I understand. Um, But they managed to avoid creating a two-tiered system by embracing the help of entrepreneurs in their uh, overall system. Now, they have, of course, government-run institutions, and they also have independent institutions, but if a doctor, they don't fixate on who will give the care, meaning is it going to be a public physician? Is it going to be a private doctor? They don't fixate on that problem. They really, they actually focus more on who will pay for the service. So it doesn't matter where you receive the, the service, there is a way to receive public funds if it's an operation that is already deemed medically necessary under the public insurance plan. So by basically financing the activities of their physicians, no matter where the service is rendered, it kind of deters the, the, the arrival of a two-tier system because they're more open to financing the efforts of entrepreneurs and private doctors in their activities in the independent clinics, let's say. But still, in, in Canadian provinces, this is a new concept. Of course, it's a fear that that's rational, but if you if we think about it right now, it's in a sense, it's already a two-tier system because if you go into a clinic that uh, an opted-out physician is working in, meaning when the, and then an opted-out physician is when uh, they decide to no longer be remunerated by the public insurance scheme, instead they opt into uh, they opt for being remunerated by their patients, but they can, you know, they, they still have the same skills. It doesn't really matter where they're operating, but they're, they're still able to provide a certain level, the same level of care. So for those who are seeking 
services in those type of types of independent clinics, because there is no duplicate health insurance, it is limited to the people who can pay for all the full cost out of pocket. And it's not everyone who can actually do that. So by allowing a duplicate health insurance policy to flourish in a province, you're allowing more people to be able to access those services. And it's important because there are hundreds of physicians who have opted out for, for X number of reasons from the public scheme to go into their own practice, which is not, it's not a bad way to practice. It's just, it's limiting the access to these hundreds of physicians who have decided to opt out. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Those are fascinating insights. In effect, that by enabling uh, mixed insurance models, we arguably make the system more egalitarian than is presently the case. It's also worth just observing in passing um, that we presently have uh, hybrid insurance systems outside of hospital and physician services, right? When it comes to drugs, dental, long-term care, Canadians are accustomed to having mixed public-private insurance models. And so it's not only Sweden and Britain. I mean, we can look to our experience in other healthcare services as a a basis to understand how, how something like this might work. Now, the elephant in the room oftentimes for these types of conversations is the Canada Health Act. Do you want to talk a bit, Maria Lilia, about the extent to which the CHA enables or impedes some of the reforms that you outline in the paper? Yeah, well, the six reforms that we actually suggest doing in order to mimic the the performance of Sweden and UK, the the magic of it all is that it doesn't, it's in accordance with the Canada Health Act. So there's nothing in the Canada Health Act that says that we can't increase the number of doctors, that we can't adopt electronic patient records, that we can't remove the prohibition on dual practice. And even though there are so many provinces that actually impose this prohibition upon their population, it's not the CHA that's forcing them to do so. It's because they're so afraid of losing the federal funding, the important chunk of money that the federal government gives them every year, that they restrict themselves and keep them from just embracing the the independent sector. And they, they adopt basically restrictions that aren't necessary uh, to the respect of the CHA. And I think of a province like Nova Scotia, who doesn't prohibit duplicate insurance or doesn't prohibit mixed practice, meaning that their physicians can practice in both the public and private sector simultaneously. And they still receive federal funding every year, despite these the openness to the independent sector. So it's more of a fear of, of not receiving the funding than uh, than the fear of the independent sector at this point, perhaps. That's fascinating. In, in, in other words, that in the minds of Canadians and, and, and provincial health policymakers, the CHA has come to represent a conceptually a bigger obstacle to reform than it, than it may be practically. And we can wrap up with a, a bit of a conversation about how to move forward. But one of the things that I really liked in your paper 
was the discussion and analysis of medical education in the provinces of British Columbia and Quebec. When we talk about healthcare capacity, there's a lot of discussion around the number of beds per share of the population and so on, but a less deep thinking about the way that we educate and train medical professionals. So uh, let me just throw it to you. What did you find with respect to admissions and, and residency in the provinces of BC and Quebec? And to what extent is our healthcare capacity problem fundamentally a human capital issue? Well, that's a really interesting aspect, actually, because what I saw is that the there are medical, for those who don't know, maybe, maybe there are medical school quotas in, in all provinces across, the, across Canada. So they put a limit on the number of students that can actually be admitted into, into the medical programs of the province, which makes it so that there is a limited number of doctors who graduate after eight years of education. And that's if all of them actually graduate, because let's say in Quebec, we can admit 969 students every year, but that doesn't mean that we're going to have 969 more doctors in eight years. It depends on how many people actually finish the program. And the residency places after that, of course, depend on the medical school programs, uh, medical school, school quota, sorry, because they know that there won't necessarily be an unlimited amount of doctors who graduate because there's a quota. So it's hard to, to find a place if you're in a cohort that did really, really well, so maybe the residency number didn't, the residency places didn't necessarily expect that and you can find a hard time, you can have a hard time finding a place in the residency program. But in uh, Sweden and the UK, when they were doing these transformations, they had the same problem that we did, meaning they were also afraid of lacking doctors. They they were wondering where, with all these new institutions, these new clinics, you know, where are the doctors going to come from? How are they going to keep treating patients? But they didn't just stand there and, and be paralyzed by that problem. They, they searched elsewhere. They thought that there were solutions to this problem. And that was by bringing in doctors from other countries, by increasing their medical school quotas, and just overall expanding the scope of work also of their other medical professionals like nurses and pharmacists. And we can always do the same. Again, there's nothing in the CHA keeping us from doing that. And just eliminating medical school quotas in general, it would be a great reform to, to increase the number of, uh, of doctors on our territory. If we can go back to the question of the, the transformations in, in the UK and Sweden, really, I know that you're an economist and, and a policy analyst, not a political analyst, but political economy is obviously part of these types of conversations. That The National Health Service has many of the same cultural residents as Medicare in Canada. So do you want to just talk a bit about the transformation process in the UK and Sweden, the extent to which they faced political opposition and how people feel about those healthcare systems today in the aftermath of those changes? Yeah, well, just like here, one of the obstacles that they did have to face was the changing of government. So when one government arrived, they were very pro-market. They wanted to introduce more independent clinics. And so the, the reforms kind of went along with that. But if that government was overturned a couple of years later, those reforms are actually in, in one case withdrawn in Sweden. And they kind of took a step back and it, uh, it limited patient choice at, at that moment. As for the UK, it, it kind of did the same thing. There was a first attempt at what they call the internal market, meaning expanding the role of entre- entrepreneurs. There was a first attempt to do that. It took a couple of years, but they realized that there were 
too many things that kind of went wrong and they tried to do it too quickly. Uh, there was still too much political involvement. They were re really reluctant to delegating decision-making to managers and doctors because the careers of politicians were on the line and dependent on the success of the program. And so throughout their, their reforms, of course, there were bumps in the road, but what really helped in both cases is when they uh, gave greater autonomy to the medical institutions themselves. So they introduced actually reform that created a new type of hospital in the UK uh, called Foundation Trust. And Foundation Trust are actually just normal hospitals to begin with. And once they prove themselves through actually a star system, so once a public hospital achieves a three-star rating, it's one of their, their ratings that uh, they put, actually put online for uh, all the population to see how well their hospitals are doing. But once they achieve three-star rating, they can apply to become a foundation trust. And once they're approved, they actually have a greater level of autonomy, whether it's for their operations, their, the, the management of the hospital itself, the way they finance themselves. And so no matter what government is in place, that hospital, it, it becomes kind of at arm's length from uh, the government in power, even if it is still funded, obviously, by taxpayer dollars. That's interesting. These were cases where transformation was driven primarily through policy and political change. And that may be one way in which we see significant reform to healthcare systems across the country. But an another potential avenue is jurisprudence through the legal system. The paper outlines, for instance, the Supreme Court case in, uh, in Quebec last decade uh, called the Chihuly case. There's also, of course, can be surgeries versus British Columbia that's making its way through Canada's judicial system. Do you want to maybe just talk a bit about these cases and the extent to which they themselves might open the door to some of the reforms described in the paper? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the Chile case that, that happened in Quebec was back in 2005, and that one challenged the constitutional validity of Quebec's uh, prohibition on duplicate health insurance. Uh, for, like I said, publicly publicly insured services. Now, it did actually, we did have a favorable ruling with the Truly case, but for several reasons, it didn't exactly have the impact we were all expecting it would have because, well, first of all, it overturned, yes, the prohibition on duplicate insurance, but because of the government in place at the time, they only allowed Quebecers to uh, purchase duplicate insurance for three very specific operations. So it's very hard for an insurance market to flourish, to grow, if it can only sell three products, basically, and it's for cataracts, hip replacements, and uh, knee surgeries. So the, these three operations are eligible for duplicate health insurance, but because there's only three, and because those are actually much more common in an older population, I mean, there's tons of reasons why a health insurance market, a duplicate health insurance market didn't actually grow from, from that decision. Um, and they also increased uh, the fines related to uh, physicians going against the uh, basically also, no, it's dual practice, sorry. So there are a lot of reasons why this didn't actually have the, the impact that we were expecting. As for the Canby case, which is ongoing, it's actually a bigger challenge to the provincial uh, health law, simply because they want to knock down every single restriction that is impeding the development of an independent sector in BC. So this includes the ban on duplicate health insurance. It also includes the ban on extra billing so that doctors right now can't charge patients above what they would receive from the public insurance scheme. 
uh, when they opt out and the ban on dual practice. So they want to knock down all of these regulations. So it's an even bigger case than the one that we saw in Quebec back in 2005. And if it has a favorable ruling, that one has a, has much more potential of having the, uh, the results or the, yeah, having the result that we've seen in Sweden and the UK. Well, in the meantime, provincial policymakers ought to be preparing for that potential eventuality. And if they are, the first thing they should do is read Maria Lily Shaw's paper from the Montreal Economic Institute. The paper is Real Solutions for What Ails Canada's Healthcare Systems, Lessons from Sweden and the United Kingdom. Listeners can find it at the Montreal Economic Institute's website. Maria Lilly, congratulations on the paper and, and thanks for taking the time today at Hub Dialogues to share its key insights and your findings. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.